On this week in the podcast, I am super, super excited to talk about fats. I spent a long time doing research and preparing for this, and it's probably my best one yet, if I'm me being honest, but maybe it's not. You'll have to let me know. Super excited about it. It's very dense, a lot of stuff, but it'll, it'll change the way you are thinking about life, food, and diets. Listen in. This is a good one. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Average to Athletic Podcast. Very excited about this one. My name is Graham. I am your host as we go through this journey of discovering what high performance and reaching your potential looks like. And this week we're continuing our series about nutrition. I have been, I don't know what the, the phrase for it is, but I've been very um, embossed in all nutrition and just absolutely like learning everything I can about it. And that's kind of been my obsession recently. And so this week we're talking about fat everybody's favorite thing. And this is something I've definitely grew up in. So we've been in this narrative um, that vilifies fats for the last 50 or 60 years, right? And, you know, if you grew up or a child of the 90s, 80s, or maybe even the 2000s, you kind of remember everything was low fat, no fat, reduced fat, butter got replaced with fat with uh, margarine, the like even everything from Doritos had low fat or reduced fat. They cut cholesterol out of everything. They replaced um, saturated fats with vegetable and seed oils. It was this whole crazy thing because fats became blamed for uh, heart disease, metabolic dysfunction, obesity, you name it. And unfortunately, the shunning of fats has actually led to this ever-increasing rate of obesity, metabolic dysfunction, and disease. But the thing is that fats are not the problem. They are the solution. Well, well, specific types of fat. See, not all fats are created equally. So in this one, and I'm very proud of it, I've spent hours and hours researching and writing and kind of preparing this. So I'm very excited for it. It's a little bit, uh, there we get some, some nitty gritty things, but we'll talk about why fat is going to be the answer to curing obesity in many ways. And so uh, we'll work through that. So bear with me, but to start, we're going to go over a brief overview of fats. Now, there are four main types of fats that we consume. There are saturated fats, which are basically healthy fats from mostly animal-based meat and dairy sources. They're rich in energy, nutrients, and value. And these would have been the primary sources of fat that we would have ever had access to ancestrally. So our diet would have been mostly composed of saturated fats. However, those are the ones that got vilified. They're the bad ones, right? Then we have monounsaturated fats. So these are naturally occurring fats that are in olives and avocados, among others, and they have uh, a lot of benefits for the body. But uh, since we can make these monounsaturated fats endogenously and we tend to get them from a diet, they aren't really a huge concern for us. Now, the other category of fats that gets a lot of talk is, these, is this category of polyunsaturated fats. Now, these are the omega-3s and omega-6s. Omega-3s are generally speaking the anti-inflammatory and the omega-6s are generally speaking the pro-inflammatory. Though they each have some category, they each have some anti-pro-inflammatory um, characteristics, generally speaking, we'll, we'll categorize them that way. Now, these are high in fish, uh, meat, nuts, oils, and some vegetables as general sources. Now, it's important to know that no one Rarely do you have a fat 
that's found in nature that's just one. This is only saturated fat. This is only polyunsaturated. This is only monounsaturated. They have like a medley. So they're different varieties. So animal products may have a lot of saturated, some poly and some monounsaturated. And avocados may have some monounsaturated, some polyunsaturated, and some saturated. So understand that there's a variety of each. Now, then the last category is transaturated fats. Now, they are found in some food, and there are natural forms of this. And in general, they're small amounts, something like uh, vaccinic acid or uh, conjugated linoleic acid, CLA, are sources of transaturated fats. But in general, you want to avoid these, okay? So if you're eating meat or something like that, and it looks on the back, there's a little bit of trans fat. If it's naturally, that's going to be fine. What you want to stay away from are things that are created in a lab. Now, these are things that are used to make foods more shelf-stable, and they're really not safe for human consumption. Things like they're in icings, cookies, pastries, shortenings, Crisco, and other highly processed foods. If you look in the back and there's something that says um, hydrogenated oil or partially hydrogenated, those are things that are absolutely horrible for you to eat. And if you go in the pastry section at most grocery stores and look at the back, they're going to have some form of hydrogenated oils, which is really crazy. So as a slight aside, I was at a friend's house a few weeks ago and they made brownies. And I was looking at the ingredients on the back because obviously I'm the worst person to hang out with because anything you eat, I'm going to be like, well, it has this. So just never invite me over. But you look at the back and it was like, oh, you get the brownie mix and mix in some vegetable oil. I'm like, why would you mix in vegetable oil when you could have butter? It's insane. But there's this really fat phobic thing. And most things that are desserts or pastries or whatever they are, can be made with very simple, easy to procure ingredients that don't require a lot of these stabilizers. So, you know, when it comes to holidays, if you're going to make pie or cupcakes or cookies or whatever, just make it with scratch ingredients. It will improve the quality so much better than getting the cheap, easy ones at the store. Sorry, that was a little rant. But if you're confused by the whole concept of should I eat fats or not, don't feel bad. All right. So just a quick Google search on fat on fats reveals a lot of conflicting evidence. See, most major health institutions still claim that saturated fats are unhealthy and they should be avoided or replaced with unsaturated fats. And you've probably grown up thinking that red meat and butter are bad because of this. The reality is that this couldn't be further from the truth. And I know you're thinking, what is this guy talking about? He's just a personal trainer. Why would I not listen to Harvard Health? I get it. But the problem, and we can talk about these things, but as a general overview, most of these institutions come from a plant-based, plant-forward dogma that for lack of a better phrase, they don't want animals to die, which is admirable at some level, but they couch it in this, a health and a sustainability argument, neither of which hold water, but because we've repeated something so many times, it's become true, so to speak. Now, my first part of this is going to be kind of break that down and help present a different perspective, but I'm going to try and tackle it from a philosophical perspective and then from a scientific perspective. So this is the real thing for me that when I first came across more of a carnivore-ish, animal-based style of eating, they kind of switched it over was the idea that, you know, from an ancestral, ancestral view, humans evolved because of fats. We literally were able to expand the size of our brain, our body, because of this macronutrient, and it allowed our cognition to form at a rapid pace. And just by studying the fossils and the skulls of our evolutionary relatives shows this rapid increase of the size of the brain and the skull relative to other animals. And additionally, the incredibly, so our stomachs are really, really acidic. So they're like, you know, I think 1.5 acidity, maybe two, somewhere on there, don't quote me. 
But that you don't see in herbivores or carnivores. You see it in scavengers. And so those are people who have to be able to eat and digest decaying meat, which would suggest one of two things, maybe both. That originally, before we were good hunters, we were scavengers and ate the leftover remnants of meat. And B, that once you killed something, and if you're not a great hunter, you have to eat it for a while, so you might be eating it until it's decaying. So the fact that we have the stomach would demonstrate that you know no other animals have this other than scavengers, and it's meant to be able to kill the pathogens that are growing in decaying meat. Not what you want to think about, but it is what it is. So fats are a highly prized food source in the wild. So rather than spending hours on then chewing and scouring for low-calorie foods and plants, early humans were able to satiate and thrive on fat-rich foods found from animals. And over time, as we became the apex predators, because we could think and we could throw things with our shoulder, which was a whole different thing, we lost the ability to hang from the trees, but we gained the ability to throw, which no other animals have. We started cooking with fire and using other tools. We were able to aggregate more fat, more calories, and nutrients. So it's important to remember that our brains, our cells, our nervous system, and hormones are all composed of fat at some level. The fat in our diets provides nutrients required to form these structures. And additionally, fat is an essential part of digesting and actually digesting nutrients. It's not enough just to eat the vitamins and minerals. We have to actually be able to absorb them into the body. So we've talked about this in the past, but there are there are certain vitamins called fat-soluble vitamins that are you know, basically the vitamins A, D, E, and K that have to be dissolved and absorbed in the presence of fat in order to get them into the body. So, and this all contains it's the right kind of fat. So we'll come back to that in a second. But if you step back to think about it, our modern dietary guidelines tell us the very, that the very nutrition and food sources we used as an essential part of our evolution are the least healthy foods to eat. It's actually crazy. If you really think about it, what did people eat before the agricultural revolution? What did people eat before you could go to the food store 24-7? They ate meat. They ate animal products. And now these are crazy. Now that these are unhealthy, it's, it is truly asinine. But it's the bill of goods we've been sold for forever now. See, before modern monocrop agricultural practices made certain plants readily available, the lion's share of nutrition that was available to humans was animal-based foods. Then you had some fruit and maybe some tubers or sparse vegetation. But this shakes out like a lot of saturated fats, some unsaturated fats, and then some fructose and fiber depending on the season. Because you got to remember, plants don't grow year-round. And this is the crazy thing is I know you walk into a food store now and you're like, oh, it feels good to have vegetables and lots of colors and variety. This is a modern convenience that's afforded to us based off of the globalization of these markets that you can have bananas growing year-round somewhere, but as long as they can get on a plane, they can get to your Harris Teeter or whatever, Publix, whatever you have nearby. It, the, the, the shifting around this that people can eat a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet and, you know, be, and thrive is like maybe today they can, but this is not ancestrally connected with anything we would have ever had access to because... I was on that little backpacking trip a few weeks ago and the thing I kept walking around is like, there's not a lot of calories. I mean, maybe some squirrels and birds, but you know, there's no plants, nothing to eat on the ground. It's like, you know, it gets pretty scarce. So the crazy thing is that over the last 50 years as the phobia about fats has spread, the broad advice was to move away from an animal-based diet. We replace these animal fats, mostly saturated fats with cheap and unnatural oils, vegetable, nut and seed oils, 
Butter was replaced with margarine. Lard was replaced with vegetable shortening. Lard is uh, rendered pork fat, in case you didn't know, because I didn't know that for a while. Uh, chickens doubled in size, and they became the go-to white meat. So you ever think about the fact that a chicken historically was never kept for its meat or eaten. It was kept for the eggs. And then they started pumping them full of growth hormones and antibiotics, and then they got so fat that they didn't have beaks, you can't walk anymore, but we're all okay with that. And then they replaced beef. And then trans-saturated fats were created to make all kind of fancy dairy substitutes as a carb-dominant snack took over the food stores. 80% of the space in a food store is about snacks and carbohydrate-based foods. And the major consequence of this was that our consumption of omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, specifically linoleic acid, skyrocketed. And we're going to come back to that. And now I know that this is you get kind of confusing because you know there's a lot of variable syllables when you say omega six polyunsaturated fatty acids. Remember, polyunsaturated fatty acids are one of the four types of fatty acids: they're saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and transaturated. In the polyunsaturated, the two big ones to think about are omega threes and omega sixes. Omega threes are the they're both essential. We need both of them in our diet. So it's not the, it's not good to say that they're, they're bad or good. But it's the problem is that the amount of omega-6s we're consuming has increased much faster relative to the omega-3s in, our, in the last 200 years. Now, you may think, okay, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs, P-U-F-As. Now, where do they come from? Well, they're high in corn, soy, vegetable oils, seed oils, nuts, seeds, and get this, poultry or pork that's fed diets high in corn and soy, which, in case you're wondering, is almost every single conventionally raised pig, turkey, or chicken. And that makes that list makes up a huge portion of our diets. I mean, the amount of things that corn and soy, like, it, it's insane. Even if you're eating, let's say you get a hamburger and it's cooked in vegetable seed oils, you know, you're getting the same thing. So what this has done is that it's changed our ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. Ancestrally speaking, that would have been around 1 to 1 to 1 to 4. So omega-3 is, a, you know, 1 to 1 or 1 to 4, omega-3 to omega-6. And that means about 2% of our calories at most came from linoleic acid, 1 to 2%. And lino, linoleic acid is the omega-6 fatty acid or the omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid. I, and, and being on the other side of this, having to learn all this stuff, it took me a while to get these words together because there's alpha linoleic acid, which is an omega-3, and then there's linoleic acid, it's omega-6. Crazy stuff, right? But you get it. I believe in you. So now with the current way that everything is cooked in vegetable oils or has corn or something along those lines, the ratio is closer to 1 to 12 and sometimes upwards of 1 to 50 or higher with 8 to 12% of our calories from our fat calories coming from linoleic acid. So things have literally gone off the rails. So why should you care? Well, if you don't like holding on to excess body fat, then you need to understand that the types of fats you eat radically change how your hormones, your fat cells, and your metabolism and satiety work. Now, I'm going to I'm going to attempt to summarize something for you which when I read this it just blew my mind, but it's so cool. So I'm going to do it as poorly as I can say this guy's last name, but I'm going to do my best to summarize an incredibly thorough and well-researched perspective put forth by Peter Dombromilsky J. He's got a SKYJ in the last, last name. It's crazy. But look up Peter from Hyperlipid. 
And if you're interested, you can message me. I'll send you more of the stuff about it. But his whole position is that different types of fats are metabolized uniquely in the mitochondria, which result in a chain of events that impacts the insulin sensitivity of the fat cell. Now, I'm going to break that down. Mitochondria are parts of the cell that create energy. They are the powerhouse of the cell. They're actually a, um, what do you call that? The, they're a, they were, uh, evolutionarily speaking, a separate organism that was, uh, I think it's phagocytosis, that they engulfed, they were engulfed and brought in as part of the cell. Um, they are an organelle, I believe is the correct word if I remember my biology. But the mitochondria are what we use to make energy. Now, they do this by moving charged particles, remember, protons and electrons, across a membrane to create a charge, just like a battery. It separates the positive from the negative, and that charge creates energy. This is the basis of building ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Now, ATP is this compound that stores energy, and when we... It releases energy by breaking its adenosine triphosphate, so there's three phosphates. It breaks off one of the phosphates, releases energy, and it takes energy to make it again. So saturated fats, all fats are done and broken down by something called beta oxidation, which is a process that uses something called the electron transport chain. That's all you need to know about that for now. Now, saturated fats are oxidized, remember beta oxidation, differently than unsaturated fats. Specifically, they create more electrons than the mitochondria can use, which results in something called superoxide, which is like O2 or O3, I believe, or O4, one of those two, three. Um, and eventually hydrogen peroxide is H2O2. And these are called reactive oxygen species. Now, I know that's a lot of stuff there, but just bear with me. Just know that when saturated fats are metabolized, they create reactive oxygen species unsaturated fats do not have the same reactive oxygen species producing effect. Now, these reactive oxygen species are powerful signals that tell the organism that fat is being oxidized instead of carbohydrates. And this does two things. It creates insulin-resistant fat cells and signals for satiety. Now, the important thing to remember is that this exact thing that saturated fat created more reactive oxygen species was the exact reason that they said avoid saturated fats or eat your antioxidants. If you've ever had blueberries and stuff like that, they say, oh, get your antioxidants, they're good for you. Now, the problem is that they are actually preventing the, the antioxidants and avoiding saturated fat is lowering this reactive oxygen species production. And you might say, well, isn't that good? Because we don't want reactive oxygen species. That sounds bad. But the problem is they have an incredibly important role. And now I said they create insulin-resistant fat cells and signals for satiety. Now, keep in mind that this is short, reversible short-term physiological insulin resistance, not to be confused with long-term insulin resistance that characterizes diabetes. That's a whole different thing where your body starts to attack itself and the pancreas isn't producing insulin anymore and your body's not responding to it, all that stuff, right? That's not good. This simply means that the fat cells are not responding to insulin, they're not taking in sugar, and they're not turning that into fat via a process called de novo lipogenesis. What that means is your body is not taking the sugar and the glucose you just ate and putting it into fat cells, which is what you want. You don't want fat cells to get bigger. Now, why would you want insulin-resistant fat cells? Insulin-sensitive fat cells listen and pay attention to insulin. Insulin-resistant fat cells don't. Now, 
You want your fat cells to constantly be releasing fatty acids for energy. Think of it like a switch or um, think of it like a drain, all right? When the drain is open, fatty acids are flowing out of the cell. Or sorry, I'm going to step back. We're going to make an analogy, okay? Fatty acids are like a sink. You want in the sink, the water is always running. Now, this insulin sensitivity thing, when it's insensitive, when it's resistant, the drain is open, which means that water can flow out and everything is good. When that switch gets triggered and the drain blocks up, that means that the water can no longer flow out and then the sink either overflows or in this case, the fatty acid or the fat cell swells and it hypertrophies, which means we get bigger fat cells. And at a certain point, once that body, once that fat cell gets too big, it becomes it literally burst and starts to release a bunch of bad hormones and things, signaling things that screws up a bunch of stuff in your overall metabolism. Now, Insulin is the hormone that controls that, that switch, that drain, that plug, okay? Remember, the fatty acids in that fat cell are always flowing. We just want them to leave the fat cell, okay? Now, when what matters is whether or not the fat cell listens to insulin, right? Remember, insulin is the storage hormone that, rele- that was released in the presence of glucose in the blood, basically when carbohydrates are being metabolized. And the type of fat you eat will change your fat cell's response to insulin. Now, saturated fat creates insulin-resistant fat cells. Unsaturated fat creates insulin-sensitive fat cells. Okay? Remember that. There's a, there's a different... I won't, go down, I won't go down that route yet. But going back to the drain analogy, we want to have a constant flow of fatty acids available for energy. Whether or not there's glucose available... Right? This is what your body uses, you know, ketones and you kind of using fat cells. If you're not doing anything like highly athletic or using glycogen, you want your body to be using fat cells. That's how you don't have energy crashes, all kinds of stuff. Now, this by constantly having fats, fatty acids released from the fat cells, meaning the drain is open, that allows our body to flex smoothly between using fatty acids for energy via beta oxidation and using glucose or glycogen for energy when available. Now, this is what happens in metabolically healthy individuals, which is only about 12% of the population. And in those, basically, who prioritize saturated fats over unsaturated fats. So, I'm going to give an example. Um, Let's say you have insulin-sensitive fat cells, meaning that your fat cells will plug up in the presence of insulin, and you eat a granola bar for a snack. The digestion of glucose triggers insulin to pull the sugar out of your bloodstream. That's what it's supposed to do. But this insulin also signals the fat cells to stop releasing fatty acids since there's a quicker form of energy available. And basically, then the fat cell stops releasing fatty acids and starts uptaking that glucose to store fat. Because your body does not want glucose in the blood unless it's going to be used for something. And if you're not going to use it, aka exercise, the body says, we need to store this puppy. So that's what insulin is doing. So notice... When, if you don't have these reactive oxygen species from metabolizing saturated fats, the insulin, the, the insulin create, your body has fat, insulin sensitive fat cells. So there's insulin, body stops releasing fatty acids, body pulls the glucose out of the blood system. And guess what? There's a lag period. There's no glucose in the blood for energy because it got absorbed. Insulin did its job. Fat cells got bigger. And since the fat cells have stopped releasing fatty acids because the drain is plugged up because it was sensitive to insulin, there are no fats available for energy either. 
And this is why you have an energy crash. This is why you have hunger cravings. And this is why you have a lack of satiety. If you've ever had that, like, I'm shaking, I'm so tired, I feel nauseous, I'm you know, about to pass out, that is because you have absolutely no energy in your system. It's because you have insulin-sensitive fat cells, which means, and we'll get to the takeaway for this a little bit, but that's because you're eating a lot of unsaturated fats or a lot of carbohydrates. So keep that in mind. To make things worse, and I mentioned this earlier, if the fat cell hypertrophy or the enlargement continues, the adipose tissue literally gets sick and starts malfunctioning. And this releases a bunch of inflammatory cytokines, which are just things that you do when your body is fighting off infection. It alters, alters hormone function and throws off your normal metabolism. This means you're not losing fat even in a hypocaloric state. You and that's what really it is that be insulin resistant or metabolically dysfunction is it's not about the calories it's about how your body's basically functioning as an as a whole. So if your fat cells remain insulin resistant from the presence of the reactive oxygen species through the oxidation of saturated fatty acids, the fat cells do not participate in glucose uptake because if they do not form new fat cells and they do not stop releasing fatty acids, what that means is when insulin pulls the glucose out of the blood and directs it to the muscles or somewhere else, the fatty acids continue to release their, uh, their, their fat cells continue to release fatty acids and you don't have the energy crash or the cravings and your body really receives significant signals of satiety from the fat cells. If you've ever had a diet, it's like, let's say sausage, um, you know, beef sausage and eggs or ground beef and you feel very full that's because you got a lot of saturated fat and your body's sending you a powerful message that, hey, we are full, we are satiated, we are good to go. So I'm gonna get break down some of that stuff. Like this, what I'm getting at, this this theory is so powerful because it really walks you through what's happening, why you can eat certain things and your body, you know, is still hungry, why you have energy crashes and why you're not full. And in reality is this is how your body would have moderated normal food. Now, you can go and look up, uh, if you look up hyperlipid Peter from hyperlipid or let's say reactive oxygen, it's called the reactive oxygen species theory of obesity. You can go look that up and there's a whole series of articles that breaks it down and walks you through it. But suffice it to say is that whatever fat your body uses or breaks down, it keeps as a primer for the next time. So when you eat, your body will release a trace amount, kind of like an oil primer when you start a car and it releases some oil to get the engine flowing. Your body will release a slight amount that's left over from the last time to prime the digestion. If that's saturated fat, you will get fuller more quickly. If it's unsaturated fat, you will continue to eat and you will then have the energy crash later on. Now, this works if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet with very low fat, you also have insulin-resistant fat cells that's a, a very different thing. So um, I don't, I think it's probably not beneficial. I'll cover that more in the carbohydrate section next time. But just know that this, this theory functions in the way that why people can have, even in the presence of carbohydrates, if you're having saturated fat, it continues to let your fat cells function healthfully as opposed to just kind of being insulin resistant or insulin sensitive. And that's why you see cultures like the French who have a lot of baguettes and bread and, and croissants, but they use butter and actual saturated fat in their diet. They don't have the same problem that Americans do. And that's why you see um, 
like let's say the the uh, Asian culture of sumo wrestlers they eat a bunch of rice, they still they may have a lot of subcutaneous fat for the sumo wrestlers to try and fatten them up, but they don't have this visceral fat, which happens when we're storing this. It it's a crazy theory in the sense that it goes against what we've heard for years, but it makes so much sense. And it's the only thing that can actually support why, if you look at our country, we've done the major diet. You know, we've cut out the red meat and we've cut, we got more grains, more vegetables, and we've cut out the saturated fats, and yet we continue to get more and more obese. So what can you do about it? So I know this will sound crazy, but the answer is to start eating more saturated fats. And, the, and of course... The disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, I'm just a personal trainer, what do I know? And, you know, not every diet works for everybody. But in general, the best thing you can do is start to get whole food sources, specifically well-raised animal foods like red meat, butter, tallow, which is rendered uh, cow fat, basically, eggs, and then poultry, poultry and pork that is corn and soy free. And we'll come back to that later, but I want to continue on this thread. And dairy, if you tolerate it well. Now... This flies in the face of almost every major health guideline from the last half century. And it really doesn't take, but the problem is, it doesn't take long to look around at the state of our modern epidemic of metabolic dysfunction and disease to get that something isn't working. 87.8% of the U.S. population has some form of metabolic function or problem. And the average American has consumed much less red meat, fat, and dairy in the last 70 years. And has opted for more whole grains, vegetables, poultry, and fiber. And the thing is, it has not worked. If it had worked, we wouldn't be spending almost a trillion dollars every year on health care for preventable diseases alone. So your takeaway from this, this stage of the nutrition series is simple. Saturated fats are your friend. Unsaturated fats are fine in moderation, and polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acids are a problem in excess. Though the whole process can be complex, the goal is very simple. To reduce or eliminate foods that have omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids like nuts, seeds, corn, soy, vegetable oil, seed oils, and poultry and pigs fed a conventional diet high in corn and soy. Now, I know what you're thinking, but I thought you said omega-6s were essential, right? Aren't they important to have? Yes, they are. But because you're eating whole food like meat and eggs and dairy, potentially, you're still going to get a small amount of omega-6s. Totally fine. Because uh, if you eat enough eggs and eat meat, you'll have some of the omega-6s. But it's, it's okay because you're remembering that it's about the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, right? And it's, well, your body needs these. When you, uh, let's say, you injure yourself or you work out, you need to uh, heal broken tissue, that inflammation is part of that process, right? It's just about, a, about getting them in moderation, right? And in general, you're going to get them. So your goal is to go out of your way to not get excess. So here's the question of, should you supplement with omega-3s? And now, I mentioned that the omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid ratio has gotten way out of hand uh, in our modern diet. Now, there are two ways to remedy this, right? You can supplement and include more omega-3 rich foods in your diet, or you can consume less omega-6 foods in your diet. Now, Well, let me let me give you back up on omega threes first. The three omega three fatty acids to note are alpha linoleic acid. I know it's not linoleic acid; that's an omega six. It's alpha linoleic acid (ALA). I'm gonna try this one: eicosapentaenoic acid (EPA) and docosahexaenoic acid (DHA). 
Now, EPA and DHA are the big players from, for brain, brain function and human use and basically are found almost exclusively in marine sources. Now, ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, comes from some plants, eggs, meat, dairy, and basically that's the, the animal source or like the land source, right? So there's a marine source and the animal source or land source, I should say. Now, that can be converted to EPA, but not at a high, very high level, only like 8 to 20%. So, in general, if you can supplement and get some sort of fish or salmon roe or sardines or cod liver oil or krill oil or um, I think there's even, uh, what do you call it, the algae, as you can get alg- algal oil, let's believe the word for it. Those can be helpful, but remember, it's all about the ratio. So, Numerous studies talk about the benefits of omega-3s and are generally widely recognized to be very important for cognition and neurological function. And some people even go as far to say there's no upper limit on how much of these you can consume. Now, while I don't fall in that camp, I generally think it's, you know, incorporating some form of marine supplement weekly is helpful, whether it be eating fish, salmon roe, cod liver oil, or fish oil capsules. Now, so while there isn't a downside to increasing omega-3 consumption, understand that the real benefit comes from improving omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. And just eating less omega-6 foods will have the same effect of reducing inflammation in the brain, improving cognition, and bolstering your joint health. So bottom line is, omega-3s are not magic. And before you go out and spend a bunch of money on a fish oil supplement, do the most effective thing and cut the omega-6 sources out of your diet. That means no fried foods, no vegetable oils, no nut butters, and no soy to start. And yes, that means like six days a week, you know, I like to be able to create the space to have an off day. But, you know, the big thing here is that like, it's about the ratio. And it's not that omega-3s are that amazing, it's that the omega-6s are that bad. And if if you're listening, you're saying, you know what, screw you, I'm still going to have my vegetable oil, I like my canola oil, you know, and I'm going to have my, I don't know, corn and soy shake and chicken and stuff like that then I would say, yeah, you definitely need to have omega-3s because your omega-6s are way off. And so that's why people see almost a universal benefit by adding omega-3s because everybody's got a horrible ratio of omega-6s. But here's the thing. The more of these omega polyunsaturated fatty acids, you know, it's another expense. And it's also another oil that can go oxidize and create problems in the body. So just keep that in mind. If you do want to go the extra mile and add in an in omega-3 supplement, go for quality. The best bet is wild-caught salmon roe. And then, you know, followed by a small whole fish like sardines or anchovies. Make sure it's in water, not in oil. Big difference because we're trying to cut out the omega-6s. And then wild-caught fatty fish like um, salmon and cod. Uh, salmon is the smash fish. So salmon, herring, anchovies, sardines, and mackerel. Salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring would spell smash. That would be better. Um, those are going to be good because they're fattier. Um, and then finally, a, a fish oil pill. Now, if you do the pill because everyone wants a cheap and easy pill, remember that these oils need to be refrigerated at all times to prevent oxidation and becoming rancid. You wouldn't just leave your salmon out there for three days on the counter and be like, oh, good now. It would go bad. Same with fish oil. So you can go ahead and throw away your old fish oil pills if you bought them you know, on the shelf at a store they were sitting out on the shelf or they've been sitting on your counter for a while. Sorry. You get what you pay for. There's a reason there is a reason with everything that there's a difference in price. Things that are more expensive are nine times out of ten gonna be a better quality. And when you get the cheaper one, you're gonna get less quality. So, you know, there's that. But research uh, examine.com is a great resource for uh looking up and getting recommendations for specific uh, 
fish oil or any type of supplement. I just like to get it from the real food source because it's a little bit better. Now, before we wrap this up, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the deal with poultry and pork. Because I know you're going to think, wait, I don't just want to eat red meat the rest of my life. Crazy, I know. And I thought pork and chicken were healthy. Well, maybe not pork, I guess. Maybe chicken and turkey. So when it comes to animals, there are two terms you should know. There's monogastric digesters and ruminant digesters. Ruminant animals like cows, elk, bison, goats have multiple stomachs where toxins and fats can be metabolized by bacteria longer. Um, They also do a much better job of dealing and digesting with these typical grain diets, right? Now, Monogastric animals like pigs, chicken, turkey, and humans, among others, have only one stomach. This means that the fat we eat are the fats we store. So, you know, animals store their toxins in fat. And so if you only have one stomach, you have to get them out and process them. They have to go somewhere. So they tend to just store them in fat. So humans cannot make polyunsaturated fatty acids. So the only way we store these is by eating them. And you can get a lipid profile for your cells and see how much of each type of uh, fatty acid you have in your body. But if you have fatty polyunsaturated fatty acids, it's because you consume them. And this is the same for poultry and pork. Now, because everybody wants bigger and better and cheaper, the large food producers are always looking for a way to deliver you highly subsidized food which means that these conventional animals are fed a diet that's high in grains to fatten them up before slaughter. Now, while ruminant animals do a much better job of digesting these omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids and storing them as saturated fats, because the rumen is a different section of the stomach that has different bacteria, monogastric animals do not. This means that the poultry and the pork have a high level of linoleic acid. Remember, the big, that's the big culprit from the poly unsaturated fatty acids and omega-6s. If I, the amount of times I've said that in the last three months is, ugh, it is, uh, I'm getting tired of the whole phrasing. Um, but when you eat chicken, turkey, or pig, you're getting a large dose of these. And yes, it adds up and it matters. More specifically, I'm really not a fan of poultry because there's just not much fat to begin with. And, you know, you really don't want, you know, you want fat and carbs are the two macronutrients for energy. Protein is just there for a building block. If you get too much protein but not enough carbs or fat for energy, you don't do very well. Go look up what rabbit starvation is. It's basically getting too much fat or getting too much protein without enough fat. So when you're looking at these animal sources, you want to think the more fat I can get in that, the better because that's what your body will thrive off of. So here's your thing. I know you're thinking, well, where do I find soy and corn-free pork and poultry? Yeah, it's very difficult, right? It is a whole different ballgame. So since these animals just store the fat they eat, if they aren't fed polyunsaturated fatty acids, they won't store polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is amazing. So pasture-raised pork and poultry are free to rummage and eat a variety of foods that have a much healthier fat profile. It's just harder to find. And in case you're wondering how to tell if the poultry or pigs are fed corn and soy, if they don't specify that they are corn and soy free or claim that they are, and, and they claim that they're 100% vegetarian fed, they're fed corn and soy. The whole, this it's, it's a crazy marketing thing. Chickens are not herbivores. They are omnivores. They roam and they eat insects and small critters in addition to little like seeds and plants and stuff. The whole vegetarian fed claim is such a marketing ploy to get you to think it's healthier, which is, again, it's like the whole vegetarian humans are healthier. It's crazy. Ironically, this just lets them shove these animals in the tiny quarters with no real food and they give a bunch of, you know, junk. So... 
you will have to go out of your way. I mean, some places will do uh, forage-fed pigs and uh, and pasture-raised chicken. And if you get that, that's going to be half the battle. But you also will notice if you can get soy-free chicken, soy-free pork, that's huge. It's just much harder to find. It's more expensive. But it's totally worth it. Because if you eat a certain amount of, it's like a portion of pork is like having the same amount of canola oil. It is packed with this. This is why I've actually stopped eating bacon too. Um, because I noticed there was a period of time where I was cooking things in lard and eat bacon. I was like, started to put on a little more body fat. I'm like, this is strange. This is a very different diversion uh, from what I was experiencing the last week or two. And then I started learning more about it. And I was like, oh, cut out the pork, cut out the, the lard, cut out the bacon. Immediately dropped a few of those extra, and that, that wasn't a pound, but I'm just very sensitive to it. I look in the mirror at myself all the time and I don't like to see any body fat. But, you know, that it, it makes a difference, right? So your bottom line, and we'll wrap this up because I know this is, I'm long in the tooth here, but I love it. I just love fats. When it comes to what meat to choose, follow the guidelines. Ruminant meat, so that's a red meat, is best. Always choose 100% grass finished when possible. And a slight note on that, almost all animals are raised on pasture the majority of their life. But the last 20, 30% of their life, they're sent to the, you know, if it's a low quality organization, it's a con- controlled animal feeding optimization, a CAFO, where they get fed grains to fatten them up. And at the end of the day, the nutrition profile is different and it's better if you are doing grass finished, which is animals stay on pasture for their whole life and they eat grass all the way until slaughter. But it's not that significant when it comes to ruminant meat. So eating a hamburger of any spade, any color is better nutritionally than any other option, but there are still a hierarchy within that. But just know it'll say 100% grass-fed, grass-finished, and that'll tell you there wasn't fed corn at the end. Now, then you've got poultry and pork are fine when they're pasture-raised or corn and soy-free. And if you're not sure, just skip those and choose beef. Avoid vegetable and seed oils in your cooking, like the plague. Get an ask for meat cooked in butter at restaurants. If you can, just say, hey, can you cook this in butter? It will make a huge difference because I was at a Mexican restaurant recently and they advertised 100% vegetable oil used in cooking. I'm like, what are these people? Like, this is crazy. They're advertising that they're, t- they're uh, giving me toxins. Crazy. But that's just where we're at now. Give it to 10 more years. For fish, choose fish that's wild caught and limit larger predatory fish that bioaccumulate toxins like swordfish and sharks and all that stuff. Fattier cuts of meat are always ideal across the board because you need the fat. You know, something like sirloin is not going to be nearly enough fat as much as like a ribeye, right? And definitely growing up and thinking fat's weird, you get a, it maybe is somewhat of an acquired taste, but when you get it crispy with a little bit of salt, oh, it is so good. And to finish this section, the big thing, the thing to remember is that your body thrives off real food. Fats are an essential part of your health and they have been for millennia. The best source of real fats are animal foods. If you've been following the mainstream dietary dogma for years and are still overweight, inflamed, and unhealthy, it's probably time to rethink your relationship with fats. Now, thank you for sticking with me. I know that was long. I hope you got some value from that. This is such a powerful and important thing to understand and to adjust. If you have any questions or you want to talk more, shoot me a message at admin, A-D-M-I-N, at gramtuttle.com, and I'd love to talk to you more that way. Regardless, please leave a review. Um, you know, the whole subscribe and, and that stuff and uh, help me to become famous and rich and uh, be a full-time pod. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be a full-time podcaster, but I'll be back with part four talking about carbohydrates probably in two weeks. I'll do my best. 
stuff takes from all put together. Appreciate you all. Have a fantastic week. Thank you.